Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. From dust storms that help spread or harm life on Earth to ones out of this world. We look at dust storms that can help spread life across vast distances of barren terrain, or how dust storms can bring in pollution from one side of a continent to another. And we also look how dust storms can grow from a small storm to engulf an entire planet, like on Mars. We like to think of deserts as being a barren, lifeless place, and to a certain extent, that's true. But there's a lot more life hidden inside a desert than first meets the eye. And when you think about the vast expanses of a desert, you may not often think that things can travel and spread across the desert. Particularly, let's say, a waterborne disease or microinvertebrate. Yet that's exactly what happens. These tiny aquatic creatures can make incredibly long journeys across hundreds of kilometres of barren desert. And they can colonise hydrologically disconnected regions throughout this entire desert. And how do these tiny microorganisms accomplish such a spectacular feat of navigation and migration? Especially when you consider that in the middle of a desert there's not an awful lot of water and the air itself isn't particularly humid. Well, researchers from the University of Texas at El Paso, UTEP, have shown for the first time how these waterborne microinvertebrates can travel the vast expanses of arid deserts. And the answer actually was discovered with the help of some marbles. So we're going to dig into this story out of the University of Texas in El Paso. This study was published in March 2018 in Limnology and Oceanography Letters, which is a pretty strange paper to publish about deserts, but that's exactly what it was. This research was led by Elizabeth J. Wells, PhD, a professor at UTEP's Department of Biological Scientists, and the director of the doctoral program in ecology and evolutionary biology. And this is important because as our climate changes, as she says, and water patterns shift, our work might help others understand the intricacies of wind-aided dispersal of freshwater organisms. Important because these organisms are the base of the food web, the lowest part of the food chain. So anything that affects their movement and migrations and spread across the region has incredible importance for not just the local ecosystem, but the ecosystems of the surrounding areas. So Walsh and her team, as mentioned, were trying to figure out how, over a period of a five-year-long study of the Chihuahua Desert, how the various little pockets of aquatic environments were linked Now, part of that project involved characterising all the different types of the biodiversity of the microinvertebrates at over 300 different distinct locations scattered across the Chihuahua Desert. Now, researchers saw this huge amount of diversity in body form and type across all these little pockets of water that are separated by large, large distances. And those large distances are not just huge little, maybe, streams that can be traveled through. No, these are huge deserts separating these pockets of water, and they're not tied together through typical connections like drainage routes or small creeks, because, again, you're in a desert. So how do all these little microinvertebrates get from one site to the other? How does one family of microinvertebrates end up in another side of this massive desert miles and miles and miles away? 
And if they weren't moved by water, and there's not many animals in the desert for obvious reasons, then it really only leaves one thing, the wind. So what could you do to investigate this? Well, that's where Thomas E. Gill, who's another professor at the Department of Geological Sciences from UTEP, steps in. And his real focus was, well, what kinds of living things could be carried by dust? Now, as we know, deserts are home to large dust storms when wind sweeps across the plains and picks up all kinds of things. Could it be picking up these microinvertebrates and carrying them? And if so, how on earth do they survive that journey? After all, if you live your life in water, in one of the few pockets of water in a desert, getting carried along in a dust storm is probably not going to be good for your health. These two researchers, Professor Elizabeth Walsh and Professor Thomas Gill, teamed together with a large group of associate doctoral students working with them to conduct a massive test and study over many, many years. They collected dust samples and confirmed in multiple locations that these dust samples contained microinvertebrates. And these microinvertebrates were in a variety of different stages. Some were fully mature adults, others were in developmental stages, but they were all dormant, which is particularly interesting. Then they took all these samples and they tried to rehydrate them in laboratory settings and see, did the presence of water then spark these organisms back into life? And yeah, they found that with combining of taking all these dust samples, bringing them back and regrowing them by basically exposing them to water again, they could foster and create whole new cultures with these microinvertebrates. And so now they really had to do the last thing to prove that the dust storms were in fact the vehicle helping these creatures travel across the deserts. They had to simulate one. And they had to see if the simulated dust storm could help the organisms survive being blasted across the lengthy distances. And that involved the U.S. Department of Agriculture's wind tunnel facility in Big Spring, Texas. So inside this massive wind tunnel, they simulated a windstorm. They took clean, fresh desert soil in which they mixed some microinvertebrates and blew it into the air to create the dust storm. After this energetic, turbulent journey through the wind tunnel, the team showed that the organisms, which are about normally the size of grains of sand when dormant, especially in their young stage, survive getting sandblasted into the air. They can fly through the atmosphere probably about hundreds of miles in viable conditions and still afterwards get rehydrated and wake up. Now, this is pretty exciting and unique because in some regions of the world, like the southwest of the United States, dust storms are a common fact of life. They happen every spring. But now we know that the dust storm is not just carrying with it dirt and topsoil. It's actually also playing an important role of spreading these tiny aquatic animals all the way across the countryside and helping them colonize new areas. Once these microinvertebrates get into these new areas, they can form the basis, the starting point of a new food chain. And then other creatures that feed on these can come in and grow and survive, thus opening up a whole new pocket of the desert to life once more. So even the most dangerous, and seemingly devastating thing, a dust storm, can actually be carrying with it all kinds of life. So this is some great work out of the University of Texas at El Paso. Ulsan in South Korea, on, well, the south 
eastern side of the country. It's one of the industrial heartlands, particularly of shipbuilding and heavy industry. This includes large presence of automobile factories, large shipbuilding factories, huge amounts of petrochemical processing plants, and non-ferrous industry. Now, Ulsan is a, is a pretty interesting place and a hive of activity in South Korea. But every summer, spring, and even autumn, it gets bombarded with clouds of dust. And for a while now, researchers in South Korea have been focusing on, well, the presence of these fine dust particles wafting in from different parts of the world, perhaps coming in from China and other industrialised areas across the region. Because Ulsan has one of the highest concentrations of these fine dust particles, which obviously, unlike the dust which can carry waterborne creatures all the way across a desert, carrying very fine dust all across a continent can be hazardous for people's health, especially if that dust contains some particularly high concentrations of some industrial chemicals. And that's what researchers from UNIS, the Ulsan National Institute of Science and Technology, have been investigating. And they published a paper in the journal Environmental Pollution. In this, Professor Sung Dok Choi and his team of researchers, we've been studying the concentrations of, the, of chemicals such as polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, or PAH, in the air in Ulsan looking at not just the presence of dust and fine dust particles, but also what's carrying inside that dust. Is it carrying with it some volatile organic compounds that can be just as hazardous, if not more so, than the dust floating in from the factories? Now, to do this, they actually measured the concentration of dust and also analysed the chemicals found in that dust from a variety of different regions. And the findings are actually pretty interesting. So even if the total amount of the fine dust, of their weight, let's say, of the dust in the air, is quite low, the risk to human health doesn't go away. It really depends on the presence of certain toxic substances in the air. For example, if you have a lot of dust, but not very much toxic substances, then that's not really that dangerous for human health. Correspondingly, you can have a very small amount of dust in the air, but the concentration of toxic substances can be quite high in it, then that's particularly dangerous for human health. So Korea's been focusing on the total dust volume content without actually taking into the rest of the important considerations, such as the presence of any chemicals that might be hazardous to health. Now, the concentration of chemicals such as PAH in a gas or particulate phase are often higher in winter in Ulsan. This is January and February, and also in spring. And this is largely attributed to the fact that the ultra-fine dust wafting in from China comes through in that portion of time. Now, later in summer, due to the trade winds blowing a different direction, they're not getting any dust coming in from China, so the dust concentration levels really drop down. But the concentration of PAAH, this dangerous hydrocarbon, in the air still remains very high. And this could be, now that the winds are blowing the other direction, it's actually bringing these chemicals in from the large refineries, shipyards, manufacturing plants up into the population. And this goes to show that it's not just trying to worry about what dust might be floating in from outside your country, as Professor Choi points out. They need to clean up their own mess. Instead of blaming pollutants wafting in from China and nearby metropolitan areas, we need to take responsibility for local pollution as well. 
This highlights the fact that when it comes to air quality and health effects of having low air quality, you need to take a big picture look. Yes, sometimes pollutions can be coming in from all across the world, but you also need to think not just the presence of one or two factors, but are there anything else from your local region, such as chemicals that could be contributing to poor health outcomes. So this is some interesting research out of Ulsan National Institute of Science and Technology in South Korea. From dust storms here on Earth, all the way to dust storms out of this world, on Mars. Now, Mars is currently being blanketed by a planetary-scale dust storm. And this, whilst particularly devastating for those who like following along the Martian rovers, because it blocks out their solar panels receiving light, for meteorologists and climatologists trying to get a picture on how the Mars climate works, this dust storm provides a fantastic opportunity to refine those models and get a great idea on how Mars's complicated atmosphere works. Now on Earth, we're familiar with the concept of weather fronts and troughs and storms. We have seasons. We know that hurricanes sort of begin at a certain time and then migrate their way across the surface of the Earth, petering out and dying. But when it comes to Mars, sometimes these moving weather patterns can shift and form and all of a sudden, you end up with a small storm growing in scale until it sweeps and engulfs nearly the entire planet. Now, local and regional storms take place on Mars yearly, but these global-wide, these entire planet-encompassing storms seem to only occur once every three or four Martian years. Now, given a Martian year is roughly 687 day, Earth days, that's roughly six to eight Earth years. Now, these global storms are incredibly intense. These winds inside these massive storm systems can lift dust from the ground 24 miles up into the air. And as this dust is carried higher and higher into the atmosphere, it courts in faster and faster winds. Now these faster and faster winds carry that dust all the way across the planet. And it can take weeks to see it even settle. Now what happens when all these storms start to take hold? What can we learn from them and how can we study it? And that's where researchers from Penn State University, Institute for Cyber Science, are trying to get a better understanding of it. Two researchers by the name of Stephen Graybush and Hartzell Gillespie are trying to piece together the complicated, intricate patterns of the Mars atmosphere. And they're using a tool called the Ensemble Mars Atmosphere Reanalysis System, or EMARS. Now, this system takes measurements received from orbiting spacecraft, which is a lot, such as dust, temperature, and combines all these various sort of readings from Mars, and then feeds it all into a computer simulation. And they use a process called data assimilation, basically trying to stitch together a complicated web of measurements from not just one, but multiple spacecraft. And they try and create a sequence of maps of winds and temperatures and pressures and dust at hourly intervals for over six Martian years, and that's quite a long time, remembering that a Mars year is almost two times the Earth year. 
Now, with this, they can build a model. So not only can they follow the evolution of a dust storm into a planetary or a local scale dust storm, but they can also make their own predictions and see if their understanding is correct. Now, what's interesting is, as Greybush points out, a lot of storms begin the northern hemisphere and then fizzle out. So why did this one particular current northern storm make it past the equator and become so large? The last global storm was in 2007, and each storm is unique, and this provides a new example for new cases. So whilst we look at Mars and we see Mars as a red planet, and it's a very dusty one at that, we're still not quite entirely sure how its complicated atmosphere works. Are there things like trade winds? Are there latitude-based points or moving travel systems in fronts, seasons on Mars, or atmospheric currents and patterns that we haven't quite got a handle on? And that's what these researchers are hoping to figure out using the eMars data. And if we get a better understanding of that, we can possibly predict in more enhanced ways how these storms on Mars form. If one is likely to spread from being a small storm to a local storm to a global storm and how that transition occurs. And that might sound a bit silly because it's just talking about weather on Mars, but this is pivotal if you're a rover on Mars or even a crewed mission on Mars. If you rely on solar power or the ability to go outside or even survive what can be a violent and deadly storm, then you really want to know what the weather is like from today to tomorrow, especially if your whole planet is about to be engulfed in a dust storm. So that's some great work being done out of Penn State University to help shed light and see through the haze of Martian weather. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, The Grange Point. From dust storms carrying life from one part of a barren desert to another, to carrying pollution from one side of the country to another, to a dust storm engulfing a planet, we found out a lot about the weather. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.